Welcome to another edition of Practical Reliability, insights on the practical implementation of holistic reliability, brought to you by Reliability X, the DNA of success. So welcome back to another episode of Practical Reliability. I'm Joe Anderson. And I'm George Williams. Awesome. And today, today we have a rising star with us today. So you got to keep uh, on the lookout for this guy as he's coming up. Uh, he definitely, in the years to come, you're going to hear more about him. Um, he's retired from the Air Force and he's currently the head of Asset Management and Reliability at KU Medical Center. Uh, with us today is Luane Smith. Luane, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. So here recently, we caught wind that uh, you just got your first certification in the industry. Uh, CRL, huh? That's correct. So how'd that go yeah, for you, man? I'm excited about that. Uh, it was pretty good, actually. Um, I, it was a lot more difficult than, you know, what I kind of, pictured or imagined the test to be, you know, going through the body of knowledge and really feeling like I had that, that firm grounding. Uh, during the exam, I realized I have a few other points I really need to dive into, study a little bit more, uh, but it was definitely eye-opening, and I'm just proud to be a leader in this journey, if you will. Yeah, that's nice. awesome. <laughs> how, how much preparation work did you do? What was your prep work in terms of uh, preparing for the exam? Well, I originally purchased the body of knowledge uh, about seven or eight months ago. Uh, when I first received it, I read all five passport books and then the two other books that kind of came with it. Um, just started trying to apply some of that knowledge, you know, that I learned through those. Um, didn't really plan on taking the CRL at all. Um, and then a friend of mine was kind of like, hey, you should really take the CRL. You've already read through the books. I think you'll do well. So then it was just a matter of getting the confidence up to uh, schedule the exam, and then now here we are. Awesome. So you didn't – have you attended any conferences around the uptime? I have, I have not a, attended any conferences yet. Um, the Kansas City SMRP chapter – last October, November timeframe did like a SMRP, CMRP workshop. Mm -hmm. And I did attend that. That was a four day long workshop. So that's pretty uh, good given, really good. I mean, given the exposure, uh, the limited exposure that you've had to the uptime elements, I mean, that's pretty good to be able to uh, pass the exam without uh, having, you know, a workshop class on the CRL or, or sitting in some of these um, conferences where people are speaking around the uptime element. So that, that's pretty good, man. Nice. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. So, Luane, can you can you talk to us a little bit about um, KU Medical Center and kind of where you're at in the journey there? How 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 has uh, progression into reliability or asset management happened within your career and within your workplace? Um, you know, a lot of our listeners are kind of early on in their in their journey and and uh, maybe interested to hear some of your background. Yeah, uh, more than happy to. So um, I did start off as a uh, zone manager when I first started here at KU Med. And um, KU Med decided to apply for this APA Facility Excellence Award. 
And uh, one of the things they realized was we didn't have a planner scheduler role. And so what they did is they moved me from the manager position to this planner scheduler role. So when I first started the position, I was realizing that we didn't have a lot of the assets loaded into our CMMS system. Well, if they're not loaded, you can't exactly do, you know, preventative maintenance on these assets. So my first four or five months was doing 100% inventories to ensure I captured all this information. Uh, then I built PMs from it, and then I realized that we really didn't have the resources for all the PMs that we had. Um, as I started kind of thinking through how we can reevaluate and prioritize and stuff, um, I got invited to this little mug workshop, Maximo User Group workshop, that uh, Paul Crocker and BPU hosted. So when I was there, I met Paul Crocker, and we got into this reliability discussion. Of course, uh, coming out of the Air Force, I kind of heard reliability with MIL Standard 129, and but you know we weren't really heavy into it in the Air Force per se. Um, so I, I kind of conversed with Paul a couple couple days, and that's when I bought the body of knowledge. Um, and then I realized you know, man, we didn't even, like, critically analyze our assets. Like, what's a priority one versus a priority three? We're just doing these uh, OEM-based PMs, and they're not very good because uh, we just have too many of them. You can't really take the time to do these well. Um, so I formed a reliability committee because I didn't want to make the decision myself on this stuff, so I wanted to get a committee together. Uh, there's six people on this committee and uh, their expertise varies. I have like an engineer and another manager. I have a uh, multi-craftsman technician, and uh, our director of maintenance is on it. So anyway, we just got together and met for about four or five months straight and just started doing a criticality analysis. Uh, during that time, I started reading up on preventative maintenance optimization and the uh, reliability-centered maintenance tools. Um, and, you know, started going through each one of our assets as we were critically analyzing them and, you know, trying to focus in on taking our most critical assets and doing a PMO on them. Um, so anyway, we're, we're kind of there right now. We only have about four assets where we've done a RCM, PMO, which are, you know, our four most critical assets. Um, just trying to go through and, and update maintenance strategies on the rest of them. Um, also in that time, you know, started working on that strategic asset management plan. Um, cause even though as a CRL, I'm, you know, the leader or the champion of this reliability journey, um, it won't go anywhere unless I get that, you know, executive buy-in, uh, not just from our vice chancellor of facilities, but also, you know, the vice chancellor of the university. Um, so that, uh, that SAMP, um, came with a little bit of help from the Reliability X guys, too, giving some direction. But um, I finally forwarded that on Friday nice. Um, nice. to our Vice Chancellor of Facilities <clears throat> so he can review it and see if he wants to update anything. That's, but, um, That's awesome. Go man. ahead. No, it's awesome Thanks. to hear. I mean, it's, you know, you and, and Paul are a lot alike in the way that you guys approach things. And and it's much appreciated just to to sit and watch it's uh it's awesome man and and 
you know, I appreciate the ability to kind of sit and watch you grow. I think it's interesting Thank to you. see, you know, we talked to Paul and, and when we're talking to Halloween here, it's, you know, a very much a common sense approach, right? So they, they go after their leadership directly and go, look, this is common sense, right? I mean, you, you agree we should be taking care of our equipment, right? And, and they get them to say, yeah, or we need to take care of our equipment. Right? Like, and everybody else is, and a lot of people struggle at that phase, right? And they're going, oh, I don't know how to justify this and I don't know how to justify that. And, and obviously you need to understand your audience and there's a lot behind all those things, but but uh, but you're breaking it down to very simple terms, right? It's it's you know we wrote a strategic asset management plan. It lays out exactly why it's important for us to manage our equipment correctly. You you've probably had the discussions. Oh my goodness! You realize when I took inventory, there was you know a thousand assets that we didn't even have in Maximo, or or all these PMs that we're not doing, and and because we didn't do criticality analysis to do the same thing to every pump doesn't make sense. And suddenly all this whirlwind of let's do this in a little more um, strategic manner just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, that's exactly what you're doing and you're laying that in front of your leadership team and, and, and they've got to understand, well, your option is hire 10 more people so we can PM all this equipment or let's go through a criticality analysis. Which one should we do? Right. <laughs> and they go, okay, exactly. do the criticality analysis and they support that. Right? right. And then you come back from the criticality analysis and you're like, great, now we got to do the right PMs here and we got to get rid of PMs here. Do you support us doing that? Sure. Okay. So he's, you know, it's a methodical approach that you're taking, and and one that will lend its hand to success, which is, which is really good advice for those that are that are listening or watching. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. And what I find unusual in this journey or surprising is, you know, we have uh, guys that's been in the field or in the craft for many many years, and they're great technicians or they're great managers. Um, and then when you kind of introduce, hey, here's our criticality analysis, and oh, by the way, um, you know, as I go through this function and failure code and failure mode, and, you know, I think the strategy should be a run to failure on this, it blows their mind. Like, what do you mean run to failure? <laughs> we can't do that. You know, everything is important. And, you know, just trying to explain the, the risk matrix and, and, you know, hey, this really, if it does fail, you know, I got a part store a mile down the road. Uh, we're not going to have a critical loss of operation, so this is what makes sense. And even now, like three months into a run-to-failure strategy on some assets, you know, they're still kind of, oh, man, I, I don't know. That kind of worries me. You know, well, it's, it's, kinda, a, it's, it's a growth unusual. curve, right? I mean, as you continue to bring awareness and uh, training to these folks, I mean, in maintenance, uh, when you're unaware of, of what the right thing to do is and you're just used to fixing assets as you get the call, um, it's a natural thing for a maintenance guy to think everything needs fixed, right? I agree. And, and I did that, like I said, for 17 years. That's the way I operated, and I was a manager. So my assumption was that's something I'm responsible for. I have to keep it running. And not understanding that there's... A risk matrix and, and a consequence to the business or no consequence to the business. So I think it, that just comes naturally and it's a hard uh, thing to break, but you do it through education and training. So, uh, yeah, so that's one thing. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, George. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, 
I started having these these monthly meetings with each one of our maintenance zones. We do have five of them here at KU Med, and uh, so once a month I try to go and meet with not only the manager but the uh, multi-craftsmen we have in these zones, and, and you know try to discuss or communicate like, hey, here's where we're going. Here's some of the things we're working on. You know, can I get your um, advice or your opinion? on whatever, you know, said thing we're talking about. That's a really and, important um, piece, Lewin. You know, if you, if you don't, it, it can't be a dictatorship. It's not going to be successful if it's just you in a room creating a strategy and then telling everyone else what that is, right? So, Correct, the, the correct. More so it, the big thing is that buy-in of the strategies, but I also look at that monthly little get-together as, you know, the training opportunity because really you don't know what you don't know. And... um you know, since these guys are out in the field doing all the maintenance, you know, they're not sitting back reading the body of knowledge or the, you know, maintenance planning and scheduling handbook or the physical asset management handbook. And, you know, that's, that's, I feel like that's my responsibility to kind of educate and train, you know, the organization on this stuff, being an asset manager, um, and also, you know, being in reliability. So. I, I would, I would agree. That's a primary responsibility of of the person in your role who's trying to champion this journey. Uh, the the more folks you can bring the education level to uh, it higher with, with, you know, the easier it is going to be for you to to provide an understanding, a justification, get support. Um, and then ultimately, if required, funding and, and resources to, to continue your path forward. So that education starts, you know, not only not only with your management team, but also down at the shop floor and, and, and bringing those folks uh, to a level that where their focus is managing the right assets and managing them well. I agree. I agree. So what do you think? Um, let's say the SAMP gets signed by everybody your management team and everybody's on board to support it. But where do you go from there? Um, well, I know you and I have talked a little bit about this because, you know, I was, I didn't have a clue, um, you know, the <laughs> best approach to, to take this with. And uh, after our conversations uh, kind of came to the conclusion, the decision that we should really develop an asset management plan by zone because uh, each zones have different pieces of equipment different criticality uh, different operational functions um, so we'll just do an asset management plan per zone and kind of implement that um, which is a good good place to start for sure and so how will you determine the areas of opportunity inside each one of those zones so today so the SAMP gets signed you've got five zones you sit down with one of the zones. How are you going to identify where the opportunities are? Um, is that going to be a collaborative effort where you guys, you know, kind of sit around? Or are you going to do a formalized assessment against ISO 55000? Are you going to do some other? What, what does it look like for you to input the, the priorities into the asset management plan? Yeah. Um, so, number one, it is an educational piece with you know, ISO 55,000 standards, um, you know, because a lot of these managers have never heard of this until I started speaking of it just, you know, six or seven months ago. Um, but also, 
I guess to simplify the answer, George, it's like you include everything, right? So they have to understand, you know, our different maintenance strategies, what the standard is, like why we're doing it, you know, because um, it's all about, yes, reliability, but it's also about uh, take care of our resources, if you will, the money and the manpower. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a, a critical piece. You know, everybody wants the wants to, I guess, quote unquote, get reliable <laughs> as fast as they can. Right. But <laughs> yes, yes. But, but there's a but lot it of context happen quickly. It doesn't happen overnight. No, not at all. And even if you had unlimited funding, it can't happen overnight. Right. So, so the, the progression or journey that you're on is a, is a mix of, of how well we can educate people and evolve our culture of how funded it can be of quite frankly, what's the opportunity. Right. And, and, you know, you're in a service industry where there's not exactly a widget. So cost justification is not the easiest thing. And, Correct. and so, you know, you have that level of complexity that say a manufacturing site's not going to have. Um, and, but you also have the criticality of, well, these are patients. I mean, these, these folks are coming here for a reason yeah. <laughs> and we've got to mm-hmm. make sure they can get taken care of. Right. So there's a, a, a high sense of priority and yet no widget to do the cost justification. So it, it puts you in a, in a it, I don't want to say a unique scenario because there's lots of other folks that are in that same scenario, but it is different than manufacturing. And, and your journey is going to be a combination of how well it can be funded, how well you can justify things, what's the return on that investment. You know, it, it, reliability is an investment and there has to be a return on it just like anything else. And so you know, that the challenge for for your organization is going to be what's the right level of investment and what's the right, you know, just like you said, the folks didn't understand run to failure. There will be a right plateau of reliability expectation for you at some point within the organization, just because you can uh, do vibration analysis or some other technologies or it doesn't mean all assets apply. Right. And so, you know, you're you, the 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 programs, initiatives, technologies, and approaches you're going to take to ensure the reliability of your equipment will have some level of expectation and funding based on what that return is. And, and that's that's a long journey. You're in for a nice long, <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah, seven I, years. Yeah, I, I agree, guys. Yeah, right? I agree. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting you say that because one of our maintenance zones is is really our power plant. And, uh, you know, they provide all the utilities to campus here. And um, like a lot of what I'm wanting to do with, you know, the the predictive uh, condition base and even with the asset management plan itself, I want to focus on that energy center because it's our most critical facility with our most critical assets. And um, my thoughts behind this is if I can focus on the energy center and really get some of these things up and up and going with like, you know, ultrasound routes and condition based and asset management plan and really precision maintenance, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that it'll kind of give me that that proof of concept, if you will, um, that return on investment to say, hey, if I can turn around the power plant to be more reliable by doing these things, then why not do it with the other four zones? 
Yeah, and it's a and it's a perfect <clears throat> place to start, right? And and it's a place often overlooked, especially in manufacturing areas. You know, people think the packaging machine is the most critical piece of equipment, but meanwhile, the chiller servicing all the whole plant and the you know, and the feed water systems servicing the whole plant or the WFI system or wh whatever it is, those those common utilities that are spread across all of those manufacturing lines, or in your case, those common utilities that are feeding the other four zones. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> if they don't if they don't feed the other four zones, they're all out of business, right? So none of them exactly. couldn't be more critical than than the zone that's feeding them, right? So um, so yeah, it's a perfect place to start and, uh, and usually a good area, um, because it's common equipment, you can find an FMEA on air handlers and pumps and, you know, you can get people that have experience with that to help you. Whereas, you know, in some cases, um, even in, in your environment, you have some, you, you know, mass spectrometers and, and helium distribution systems and, and, uh, things that aren't necessarily as common in industry where it may take a, a much deeper exercise for you to, to get the right strategy in place. So the, the, the service or facilities areas or central utility plan areas um, are really a great area to focus on um, because a lot of those things can then be, at least depending on the approach you take, replicated across the other areas, right? If you create a an FMEA for a typical centrifugal pump, there's not a dramatic difference across all of your pumps. And so you can kind of take those things and adjust some criticality and figure out what, what applies or doesn't apply and just make minor adjustments and kind of replicate that across the, the campus. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So you recently started on your ultrasound journey, is that correct? Uh, we're in the very early stages of the ultrasound journey. So I, I contacted, um, this reliability company out of Iowa and, and kind of coordinated with Lodeca. And anyway, I have a rental SDT 340 ultrasound. Um, and I got some training how to use the device. I got some training on how to apply the device. Um, some of my leadership, when they're looking at the cost of this piece of equipment, um, you know, they were shocked and surprised like, you know, do we think, do you think we really need one of these? Um, so with this rental unit, I took it to our power plant and I said, well, let's just look for compressed air leaks and see if we can't get a return on investment on this thing. <laughs> and, uh, so I started at the air compressor, just started tracing lines and I stopped at 10 and, um, I stopped at 10 because I said, well, I'm almost to my, you know, return on investment numbers. So then I talked with leadership and said, hey, what do you think about this? And here's the numbers. And they said, yeah, let, let's do it. So um, I just obtained a quote. And in July, which is our new state fiscal year, uh, I am going to purchase a new ultrasound. It's awesome, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it it, it is a extremely quick return on investment. Yeah. That was probably one hour. Yeah, right. <laughs> you went to the plant yeah, yeah. an hour I mean, later. Yeah, yeah. one hour. Leaks. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. Just be careful of the calculations on how you calculate yeah, yeah. savings, because it's so. Just a you know quick educational point that it's predicated on the decibel level, right, or the 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 noise volume, and so the more rigid or turbulent the air is coming out of a hole, the louder it's going to sound. The more smooth the hole is, the softer it's going to sound. So you can have a yeah. large hole that's not as that's more laminar and not as 
not as um, turbulent, and it actually would cost you more, but it would have a less decibel level than a very rigid hole, right? So, um, I, you know, rule of thumb, I usually take those calculations and cut them by like 75% (laughs) because you're still going to justify the program and, and it keeps you within, you know, a, a, a really low estimate of, of what that's well, the other are. thing is the distance, how far like away the closer is. or the farther away you get, will give you a different reading as well. So you have to be consistent on uh, your distance. I think it's normally 12 inches. Uh, I believe, Correct. but, uh, yeah, you put the yeah, cone over um, it and you're saving millions of dollars. Right. <laughs> you save a million dollars yeah. in one air leak, right? And your electric bill's 300,000 a year. So, you know, exactly, exactly. you're saving well, 2 million. I found it, what I found is SDT has this little phone app called the, uh, leak reporter. And so each leak, you can take a picture of it and then put in all your numbers, you know, how far away were you, what were the decibels, et cetera, et cetera. And it'll actually kind of do the equation for you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that took me the longest was putting in all those numbers into that app than actually, you know, finding the leak. Yeah. Uh, and I did work with my energy manager to make sure I had the, you know, the right cost and stuff That's perfect. calculated. But And you can, you can actually update that to other – so when you go into other areas because you guys have oxygen, you probably have helium, you probably have some other gases – that are much more expensive than compressed air. Um, you can actually do some conversion. So if you can get your, uh, you know, your costs for those those gases as well, um, yep. you might be able to talk to SDT about how to how to make a multi selection in that app would be really really. They good. might have one. That's a whole lot better because than... UE has one I know, and SDT probably has that information. I don't know if it's in the app. I've never used the app years but... ago years and years ago when i first got that one through through ue we did the same thing at, at bms we updated we just had multiple tabs one for each gas um to help us with those calculations and back then we had that we learned the hard way you know you wrote a first time you used the gun you wrote a bunch of work orders that said here's a fitting leak <laughs> <laughs> and nobody could find a leak yeah and the set you know then you learn and we started using hanging tags so you would get two-part hanging tags hang them on the fitting and then write the work order number on the tag, staple it to the to the work order, and give it to the person to find the tag. The app is fantastic because at this point now you're giving them a very visual photograph. You know, you can kind of step back and take a bigger one of the area, take one really close to the fitting, and kind of say, "Here's here's what you need to fix." Um, so that's a that's a fantastic approach. I love it. And you got to fix the leaks to capture the saving. Yeah, that's the, that's the that's second. The, the second part is, is not have a tag that's twelve them. months old, right? Uh, yeah. Don't have a hanging tag yes. that's twelve months old. Yeah, that's the important part. <laughs> and <laughs> you know the other the other great thing about ultrasound is that it'll be very easy for your technical staff to utilize and get buy in for because they're going to go out to the leak and they're not going to notice a leak. And in some cases, they can spray their soapy water and they're still not going to find a leak. Um, yes. Whereas the, you know, you put the ultrasound gun right in our hand. It's, it's easy enough for them to find an air leak with in two seconds. Um, and, and so they can understand exactly, they can take the before and after hear that the leak's gone and they immediately understand the technology. Yeah. It, it was funny. Cause when I was out at the power plant doing this, you know, I, I, I look like that idiot with a lightsaber, you know, waving it around. And <laughs> so one of the techs, you know, came over, he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And, um, so I kind of explained what I was doing. Uh, so once we finished with the compressed air, I said, Hey, you should really check this out. So we went over to some pumps and motors and 
So I let him put the headphones on as we kind of listened. And uh, I instantly got buy-in from this young tech, like, hey, I could see so many advantages with this piece of equipment over here. And I said, well, make sure you tell your bosses, you know, so we can <laughs> make sure we buy one in July. No doubt. And then get as many folks trained as you can and keep that thing moving. <laughs> you know, one of the worst exactly. things is folks will buy these technologies and then they sit on a shelf. And they don't put exactly. together routes and put them into, in your case, Maximo. Um, and they don't take baseline readings or, or set up any structure around it. They use it as a troubleshooting tool. They'll use it for the first week after training, and then it sits on the shelf, and they forget all about it, and it's no longer a troubleshooting tool. So, so you all know, I take can keep all those picturing steps. in my head is him prancing around like he has a with lightsaber. With the lightsaber? Wait, I know. Right, well, to me, there's one of two ways you could take that, right? One is it's just because he's out there with this new tool, but the way I'm taking it is he is trying to get attention. So he's like, <laughs> look at me. Look at my lightsaber. Look at my lightsaber. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I'm kidding. Exactly. Me, man. I'm kidding. But well, that's fantastic. Know, you know me. I like the attention. <laughs> so um, so what else is on the, on the forefront for you? Yeah. Um, so I've been talking with some of my leadership team and uh, I, I'd like to create, I don't even know the proper name for whatever, but uh, I'd call it my reliability maintenance team. Um, so with our size campus and stuff, they can three or more or three or four people to be included on this. Uh, these people are the ones that I would focus on the vibration certification, the ultrasound certification, you know, lubrication, et cetera. And so um, most of our preventative maintenance task would be uh, given to them. And, you know, they would go out on their routes and do all the, you know, vibration and ultrasound, et cetera. Uh, if they find anything, then that, that repair work order would then go to the zones for them to make the repairs. So are you going to be asking uh, for three extra headcount? Um, or are you going to try to plan. use? Okay. So that that's the plan. But I'm also working through a plan where, you know, maybe I can take, you know, one or two people from the zones and then maybe just hire one or two other people. Um, so you know, kind of train the people. in the zone. What if you do this? You hire a planner. Since you're planning and scheduling, and you're the asset manager right now, <laughs> yeah, with very and, busy work. That's well, true. I'm saying you will free up enough time yeah. with the limited number of resources you have. You're still going to have to add headcount, but you might mm -hmm. be able to free up one or or two headcount to make up that reliability team if you're effective at planning and scheduling. Oh yeah, great idea. Right, and so. We can work with you on some of the math and how to sell the justification for that and sell them okay. on your end state. What the future goal is, is look, we, you know, I want to repurpose this headcount to become what we're going to deem reliability techs to go out and use these tools. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's definitely discuss that. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So I also hear you may be taking a CMRP exam relatively soon. Yes, yes. So, um, interesting story. Um, I actually took a CMRP exam during that workshop that we did back in October, November. Um, 
And even Paul said, I wouldn't start with the CMRP. I'd do the CRL <laughs> first because it's, you know, a lot more difficult. Right. Uh, but I figured I sat through the workshop. I might as well give it a, give it a shot, you know. Yeah. Um, and I kind of surprised myself because I, I did fairly well. Um, what really got me was the uh, kind of like the, the business side of it. You know, I've never been on the business side coming out of the military, and I'm fairly new here at KU, so um, didn't do as well. But because of that, I have to wait six months to retake the exam. And so right now I'm thinking about retaking it in June because we plan on doing another uh, CMRP workshop as the, the chapter. Oh, goes. nice. Awesome. So, yeah. That's really good. So that would be fun. Awesome, Wayne. Yeah, thank you. Well, listen, man, we appreciate your time. And thank you for coming on and sharing your journey with us. I know it's an inspiration to others that are listening, and, and we just thank you for that. I hope so. I really appreciate you guys having me on and appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I, I can't wait to continue to watch the progression that he has. I'm telling We're, we're going to have to, you know, reach back out to you and, and have you back on and, you know, six to 12 months each time and kind of see exactly what the progression looks like. You okay with that? Yeah, that sounds great. I appreciate that. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. You're welcome. For questions on this or any other topics, email us at ask at reliabilityx.com. This has been another episode of Practical Reliability brought to you by Reliability X, the DNA of success.